By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we're going to dive into everyone's brains a little bit. We like to do that from time to time. And we got someone with us who can maybe virtually put you all on the couch, as he would say. We are joined by Jared Tendler. Jared, welcome. Hey guys, good to see you both. Yeah, Jared has an interesting background. I've gotten to know him a bit lately. We've had some conversations. He is a mental coach for all different types of people, poker players, professional traders, professional golfers. Uh, He has an interesting background in golf. He's written three best-selling books, two of them on the mental game of poker, one of them on trading. And we're going to talk about golf today because he does work with a lot of golf clients. And I think I've always noticed the parallels between golf and poker. I sucked at poker. I did some trading too. I kind of sucked at that. And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I noticed that my mind was playing tricks on me the way golf would too. So I'm interested to dive into this with you. So Jared, for for the people who don't know you, give us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I got into this field from my own mental hangups. So I got into golf a little bit on the later side, you know, I was a competitive tennis player, baseball, and then kind of had to choose a sport in the spring. Golf was the one I chose. I uh, was an all-state golfer in Connecticut. My senior high school went to division three Skidmore college was a three-time All-American there, won nine tournaments. But 1997, trying to qualify for the U.S. Open, played some of the best golf of my life, tee to green, 16 greens, 14 fairways. I know you guys don't love those stats, but ball striking was stellar. Choked over you know, the three-footers, missed four of them, missed getting into a playoff by a shot to get through the sectionals. You know, it happens once. You think it's kind of a one-off. And then it happened uh, later that summer as I was trying to qualify for the U.S. Am. And shot 87. That, that was just like a complete disaster. I think I was almost kind of fearful of missing putts, thinking I've got to now stuff it in every hole. And so member at my club kind of gave me golf's not a game of perfect, kind of dove into Rotella and other golf psychology, sports psychology material I could find. And over the success of a couple of years, my game kept getting better. Right. So I, I played well and through college, but every time I was kind of going to play some of the big national events, I just kept joking. So I sort of reasoned at that point that 
what was missing from golf psychology was a deeper understanding of the causality of these issues and that we could understand that pressure could be mediated by deep breathing and mindfulness and calmness. But that to me is kind of a one and zero kind of antidote. It's not actually getting at the cause of why the pressure was there. You know, we could pump up your confidence and make you feel more confident, but it's not getting to the cause of why your confidence is low. So bottom line is I went and got a master's degree in counseling psychology, spent two years getting licensed as a therapist with no intent to practice as a shrink. I think that's so interesting. <laughs> you went as far as to become a therapist over your golf <laughs> problems. That's some really, when I was reading that in your biography, I'm like, wow, that is some really deep commitment. <laughs> Because that took a long time. You had to do thousands of hours of therapy with people to thousands get certified. Thousands of hours. Thousands of hours. I just felt like there was a gap in the market. I felt like if I could solve my own issues, then I'd either still have a career as a professional golfer, which is what I still wanted to do, or I'd have a career as a coach and would able to provide these services. So uh, I'll get to some interesting irony there. But yeah, did all that and then quit my job 2005 after I got my license and flew to Arizona in to Scottsdale and kind of set up shop, found a home at Moon Valley, which is, was a great ping hub for a long time. There was a lot of good tour players that would go through there, many tour players, some good junior golfers. Kind of found a guy that I was able to kind of hook up with from a, a swing side, a physical conditioning side, and I kind of provide the third leg of the, the operation and frankly struggled. I had a difficult time getting golfers to work as hard as I wanted them to on this. As much as we all know that it's a mental game, I felt like at that point, it was difficult to get people to actually treat it like it needed to be trained, like anything else in their golf game. I had a couple, you know, I had some players that were successful. One gal that won the LPGA Tour, one of the junior golfers that I started working with at 10 years old is now on the Corn Ferry Tour. But I found some success when I met a poker player on the golf course. And this was a guy named Dusty Schmidt, who uh, unfortunately passed away last year. But he was a former mini tour player, was on the Golden State, was actually leading the Golden State money when he had a heart attack. Now, this was a, actually ultimately was the cause of his death. This is not like he was doing a lot of cocaine. It was just, it was just a aortic valve spasm thing that was just genetic. He just lost the genetic lottery. But once his golf game got derailed, he dove into professional poker. He was good friends with Casey Martin, living up in Oregon, was in Casey Martin's basement making twenty to $30,000 a month playing online poker back when the poker boom was happening in 2006, 2007. And so Dusty and I just kind of had this like chance meeting a group of friends from Scottsdale, from LA flew up to go to play band and dunes and, and he was there. And so got to talking and he was in the midst of this, this online series on poker stars where it was a year long challenge to effectively play 1 million hands of poker, right. In that calendar year. And if you did that, you would win like a $100,000 Lexus. <laughs> just, they were throwing money left and right at people. But the problem for him was that he was having such massive tilt issues. He was literally ripping his desktop computer out of the wall, smashing it on the ground, punching his monitor, breaking mice. <laughs> he couldn't get the volume in because- Sounds like me when I played he, online poker. <laughs> <laughs> you two were not alone. So he and I did some work. Yada, yada, yada. Four months later, he makes 600K in that time period. And a lot of it was because he was playing better. He was playing more often. So he kind of introduces me to this world of online poker. And ironically, at this point in my career, I had to make a choice between kind of diving into professional poker, which at that point, there was no real Rotella. There were a couple of books that were out, but there was nobody doing what I do in poker. So I had this sort of wide open runway, but I had just started playing some mini tour events and I had this run 
few weeks earlier where I shot 63, 67, 66 over one weekend in some big money matches at Moon Valley and had kind of like found a golf game that I could bring under pressure to start playing some pro tournaments. And so I was like, what do I do? <laughs> do I do I take the risk of trying to spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars it's going to take to be a professional golfer? Or do I take, at that point, truly the, the less risky route was to dive into poker. So that's what I did. And a couple of years later, wrote The Mental Game of Poker. A couple of years after that, traders started picking up the book. And that's when I got into trading. And then I also worked with Team Liquid, which is one of the largest esport organizations in the world. Those that don't know it, one of the teams that I, I worked with won the world finals for $13.5 million. So there's massive money flowing into esports. And I was kind of part of multiple championships across titles. So yeah, bottom line is I basically have kind of like honed this system that I've developed, started in golf, went to poker, went to trading, went to esports. And now here I am kind of finding my way back to golf as I maybe write a book here coming up soon. Yeah. I, as I was reading the mental game of poker and I've always felt, you know, we had this conversation off air a few weeks ago that there are a lot of parallels, I think, situationally in golf that are similar to poker. And one of them that you know you mentioned earlier was, or at least my basic understanding of tilt is that, you know, when you get a bad beat in poker, you would start betting erratically to make up for your mistake. And then you're off the table in 10 minutes because you lost everything. And I've always likened that situation to the golfer who's in a recovery situation where they hit a bad drive or they've already hit a series of bad drives. They're in the trees, they see that opening and they're like, screw it, I'm going to go for it. And that just compounds the mistake. And I've referred to that situation a million times on the parallel to poker. And you have far more examples of tilt in your book that we'll get into. But what are like some of the overarching big things that you noticed that poker players, traders, and golfers share mentally? Like what is, it's probably the human condition we're going to get into here, but like what are some of the big ones for you? I think the biggest mistake is that many people they don't really actually understand what the real problem is, right? They think that the anger is the problem. They think that the fear is the problem. They think that loss of confidence or lack of discipline is the problem. And, and really that's, that's just the symptom. It's like, if you're walking down the street and you feel pain in your foot, right? You're going to ask that why question. I know both of you are, are very kind of fundamental in your, your viewpoints of like kind of getting at the root of problems. And so you've got to ask yourself that why question. Emotions are really just signals of underlying flaws, biases, illusions, wishes that are kind of running in the background of our mind that emerge in these situations. So yeah, you take Dusty and yourself in terms of the, the bad B example. What is the underlying flaw there? The underlying flaw is there. You, you are expecting outcomes that are not commensurate with situations. And I think what's been cool about reading your work and both yours and you know some of the new shotlink data from Mark Brody is like, it really actually is creating more of poker scenarios, right? You, you can create a lot more of an understanding of expectation. And, and truly, that is absolutely something that's been missing from my game over the years. I, I kind of understood it from a wide view, but not in as much of precise detail. So point being, right, one of the things that helped Dusty in our, one of our first sessions around handling bad beats was like, where if you walk outside knowing that there's a 50-50 chance of rain today and it rains, why would you get upset, right? It's a coin flip. So if you hit a particular shot in golf, knowing that the probability is not 100%, I think like 93% of, of tour players making a putt from three feet is an insane statistic for a lot of people, right? The expectation is 100%. 
And so when you have expectations that are not in line with reality, the outcropping of that is anger for a lot of people. And then over time, the outcropping turns into more desperation. So the example of trying to hit miracle shots out of trouble is more an act of desperation that is symptomatic. It's a characteristic of being much more emotionally compromised than you realize, or a bigger gambler who doesn't really care as much. <laughs> so I mean, I can go through lots and lots more examples if you want, but I think that that's what we're trying to figure out is like, what are those underlying flaws that are kind of forcing your hand in certain situations to yeah make or compound mistakes? Yeah, I've certainly found that when I was a, a junior, you know, I expected to hit 100% of fairways and whenever I missed one, and I was really good, I'd probably hit 80% of fairways as a kid because I was a short hitter. But yeah, I'd miss those that 20% and I'd be so upset with myself. And it was so freeing to finally learn the stats. Now when I do it, it's just water off a duck's back. <laughs> yeah. I always love you. Yeah. Is, that, is that a Welsh phrase or is that a... Oh, is that not a well-known phrase? Water uh, off water a duck's back. I've never heard that before. He, he, he no? pops up in these like, phrases once in a while. I'm like, oh, where yeah. the hell did that come from? It's a good one. But I've <laughs> never heard that one in my life. The two topics I wanted to talk to you about and I think they're in trading, they're in poker, they're in golf. Dealing with variance is one of them. And then tilt is a separate one. What would you rather tackle first here? I think variance is fun. I think yeah, variance is, is the one that, I, yeah. Yeah. If I had to like put my finger on it, like we we're just talking about how stats can help people, like that's the one that the way we try and help golfers, the way we try and communicate is just trying to like uncover the truth about the game. Like, what is golf asking you to do? And what are like reasonable outcomes along the way so you don't lose your mind with expectation management, your emotions, and you make more strategic decisions. And I'm sure that's a huge part of what you deal with working with pro poker players and, and traders. And and, the, and you work with pro golfers too currently now, right, as well. You have those. I do, yeah. Let's talk about variance. What is the underlying psychological circumstances we're trying to rectify here? You phrased it very well, like uncovering the truth and the nature of these things. I mean, it, if you had a perfect understanding of the nature of these things, theoretically, you would have no resistance against it, right? There would be no anger. There'd be no fear of it. Right? You wouldn't lose confidence in situations where you're actually performing quite well. You wouldn't get overconfident in situations where you actually weren't performing as well as you would expect. But that's not how human beings are. So I think from my perspective, right, you guys do a great job of providing those expectations so the truth is more clear. But that's not going to convince people to accept them by default. There's still going to be people that's like step one, right? It is that <laughs> exactly, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so like, so like the so where so where my work kind of picks up is like what are the biases, what are the expectations, what are the illusions that we are kind of imprinting into these situations, right? So the trader who is quite literally imprinting bias in the market. That's the worst thing you can do is think you see things that aren't there, right? The golfer who thinks he sees a hole in the trees that <laughs> 90% air, sure, but they don't necessarily see the risk probability, you know, or the risk calculation in that scenario. They just only see the positive outcome, right? The trader only sees that this thing's going to the moon and they're going to make X return. They're not seeing the downside risk. You and see I think my that's, portfolio that's... there. <laughs> <laughs> I assume there's some negative returns happening in the market right now. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that, that's one. Now, and I know you guys have talked about this in terms of how much golf encourages this 
sort of denial of reality, right? Whether it be watching TV, whether it be the magazines or the outlets that are trying to kind of convince you of the, the kind of the one tip wonders. And I would also argue that the handicap system is also geared towards false perception, because if it's chopping out your worst 10 scores, all of a sudden now your sense of your own capacity is significantly warped. And you're not dealing with the fundamental data set that is actually reflective of, you know, your last 20 rounds, which at least for me, I mean, <laughs> would be measuring an entire year, <laughs> but frequency has not been my, my friend these days, but we have to start kind of uncovering, like, why is it that you would deny reality, right? So some of it could be, there's this illusion of control. We, we all kind of want to have control of things that we can't control. I think that's the biggest one in golf especially for the type of people that golf attracts, you know, high performers and like type A type people who are like, they love. I know for myself, like that is one of the, the most fun things about the game is when you hit a shot exactly as you envision and it, it comes off the club perfectly. It's just like a tuning fork. That's what does it. I mean, or seeing a putt read perfectly, drop in the center of the cup. And so, yeah, it absolutely feeds this sense of control. Like I did that. Right. And it's it's like magic. And then all of those other times where we're chasing that puts, a, I think, an undue pressure on the, the, the frequencies with which that is actually going to occur. What's the Hogan line? Right. He expected to hit seven perfect shots in a round. And that's Hogan. So what are we all doing? Right? We are chasing that high of, of hitting those shots. And so there's a concept in my books that kind of highlights how to improve over time. And the basic premise is that in the moments where you are most likely to suck, you have to suck less. You know, I know this is something that the Atomic Habits book kind of reinforces, right? It's in these moments where our desire for control, for example, is so high that we're willing to take control in the wrong ways. So another golf example would be you burn three edges on relatively short putts, let's say inside 10 feet. And on the fourth hole, now you decide to ram it in the back of the cup, right? So that's you trying to take control in a way that is not appropriate with the situation, right? You're now actually adding risk, lowering the probability of success. So, I mean, I think one of the most maddening things for poker players, for golfers, for traders is like, when you try to take command or take control in the wrong way, it actually makes more mistakes. So your desire to avoid making mistakes or to lose or to avoid a failure, right? Oftentimes makes those things more likely. But in that moment, you could give two Fs and all you want is to feel in control again. We have to kind of change the way in which you are, which is trying to control your emotional state and not control the outcome of the shot. In terms of the illusion of control, there's, there's one thing that always stands out to me is I, I talked to Gene Parente over a Facebook forum. So he owns a golf robot. I asked him, how consistent is this golf robot? You know, if you're hitting, you give me an example of it hitting a driver 200 yards. I said, what's the dispersion? You know, obviously the balls are not landing on top of each other, but are they landing within like three foot of each other? And he said, no, there's a standard deviation of about 20 foot either side. I was like, wow. So even if you had a robotic swing, the best you can hope for effectively is 20 foot standard deviation. That's, That's crazy to me. So yeah. yeah. So when we hit Build a better shot, basically it's lucky as well. <laughs> I'm just not, not that impressed with that robot thing. <laughs> Build a better <laughs> robot, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on the topic of variance and like 
coming to terms with the variance in golf, like what else comes up? Obviously, control is a big one when you're working with the pro golfers, because I'm, I'm assuming they're often the hardest to work with because they're so damn good and they, they can control the ball pretty well. Like what do they have to accept versus the recreational golfer in variance? Yeah, the desire for control, these issues, right? They can bleed into any of the emotions, right? Again, some people are going to tend to get angry. Some people are going to tend to get fearful. Some will tend to lose confidence. I think the pro golfers struggle more from a confidence standpoint because I'll give you an example from poker. So Daniel Negreanu, I think it was maybe three or four World Series of Pokers ago, maybe four now, actually, prior to, to the pandemic. I'm pretty sure he only cashed in one out of like 40 events, lost an absolute enormous amount of money. And then the next year had a pretty good year and I think made a million plus. Did he play that much better or worse in those two years? And the answer is no conceivably might have played a little better the second year. But point being, over the course of a PGA Tour season, guys that are kind of on the cusp, not the the elite world-class guys, on the cusp, they can go through pretty long stretches where they're, quote-unquote, doing everything right. Like, kind of, they, they're playing their game well, but they're the ball is just not going in the hole. They're getting a couple bad breaks here, there. Like, there's some bad timing, right? Especially, like, with waves. I think one of the most impressive things about Tiger Woods' cut streak is just the number of times that he was in the bad wave, which could be a two-shot difference, and it didn't matter. For these guys, it matters. I mean, they're they're missing the cut. They're gone. I mean, so one of the guys I'm working with, the only guy I can I can say publicly that I'm working with is, is Doug Gim. Last year at the Players' Championship, I was there for five days with him, which was, which was a lot of fun. First time at, at TPC. But he was in, like, the bad wave. And I remember the, the, the players last year. The weather was insane. The, yeah, the number of delays was incredible. Yeah. It was nasty. And so, you know, for him to finish sixth in the bad wave, I've heard some guys in the locker room saying, like, dude, you won the tournament in my mind, effectively, right? But to be a guy in a marginal spot throughout the year, and then the problem is, at a certain point, the mediocre results starts to fray your confidence. And I think that's where it was kind of trying to get here, kind of the long way to get here. It starts to fray your confidence. And it can certainly happen to, to players at any level where things just aren't quite happening. They aren't just kind of clicking into place. And so what you need to be able to do is have more independent measures of your ability. And I think stat tracking is obviously one of them. But for me, from a qualitative standpoint, right, it's very, I think, simple for players to just chop out what their A game looks like, their B game looks like, and their C game looks like, right? And you do that from a, from a technical standpoint, right? When your golf swing is feeling pretty good, when your playing stroke's feeling good, you know, short game, what does it look like? A game, B game, C game. And then do the same thing from a mental standpoint. If you do that, you give yourself a way of grading yourself, grading each shot that is more independent and less reliant, right? So you hit a shot and you're like, that one felt pretty good. I was committed. I made a clear decision and then it goes where it goes. And so there's a bit of confidence that you can take away knowing that you were in control of the things that you had control of. And, and it's, it's very important to hold on to that. And you're, in essence, kind of preparing for those times when the results are not necessarily going to go in your favor. Poker and trading have a lot more variance than there is in golf. But I think golfers significantly underestimate the amount of it. And so they are actually far worse at handling it than the poker players and traders who just know that it's like baked into the game and golfers kind of give it lip service. I know you guys are doing a great job of making it more of a front and center thing. Like these are the realities, but I just think there's so much that makes it difficult to 
not focus on the results. Like we want the outcome of the shot to go where we want. We want the putt to go in. We want our score to be X. And when it's not, it starts to directly kind of wear on our confidence versus being able to look at each individual decision, the preparation you brought, the shot making you made, put it within that category of A game, B game, C game. If you're in your B game, which is going to be most of the time, you really shouldn't be losing confidence. And if you're in your B game most of the time, sometimes your your scoring is actually going to be low. Sometimes it's going to be high. But if you can be a little bit psychotic, and I say that purposely because you kind of have to be, like poker players, I think, to withstand the Negreanu example, to withstand that, you kind of have to be a little bit of a psychopath. To lose that much money and think nothing is wrong. I mean, objectively, you have to be a little psychotic. And golfers, I think, need a little bit of that just in the right form. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because our instincts, and I I mean, as much as I understand about this stuff, I have to deal with it throughout the course of a season too. And I know other all golfers struggle with this on some level at the recreational level is that it's so hard to understand the inherent volatility of the game. Like I sent out a tweet the other day to hopefully make people feel better. And, and thankfully, a ton of people responded. I just said, what's your handicap and what's your lowest score and your highest score for the year? And hundreds of people started responding and people started going through and they they got all this comfort from it because the scores were like 30 strokes apart. Mine was 28 strokes apart, something like that. And that is golf. I had a conversation once with Scott Fawcett where I was playing in a like one day qualifier tournament. And I was saying about the number I needed to hit. And he, I thought he explained it really well mathematically to me in a similar way to you're saying it now. He's like, just think of it like a bell curve. Your bell curve, what you need to shoot this score right now, that's not in the middle of your bell curve. Like you're just not good enough. Like you need your top 5% performance to get this. So you can't go in there with this expectation that's going to happen. That's just where your skill is at right now. And I actually put that explanation in my book because I thought it was a great way to think about it. And golfers have to be realistic with like their skill level, what they put into the game. And essentially, you're trying to like shift that bell curve over more to the left on the lower side, but still understanding that no matter how good you get, you know, I looked at some PGA Tours guys, you know, there's a 63 and an 81 in there within days of each other. Like it's, it happens to everyone. It's, it's, and that brings in the control thing. It just drives you absolutely crazy that like one golfer can show up one day and a, a horrible one shows up the next day. But you, like you said, you almost have to be a psychopath about it and be like, you know what? That's okay. I'm going to let that happen. <laughs> and I think part of that is knowing that you are all that. You yeah. are your range. Yep. It's yep. not like one golf. It's not three different golfers. And I think one of the most common phrases that tilt me is that's so unlike me. To miss a shot. And golfers, you know, want to avoid embarrassment. They don't want to look bad in front of others, you know, and so there's a great desire. And so it's easy in in a social sense to kind of schluff off some poor shots or some, you know, really kind of atypical. For yourself, you have to normalize that as like, ah, okay, that's within my range. And to actually accept that is really hard for a lot of players to want to do. You don't want to think of yourself as somebody who's capable of shooting 85. You want to think of yourself as somebody who's shooting the 75s. And it's, again, that's where I think the handicap system really does a disservice. You've got to look at your last number of scores and normalize that as your range. You've got to look, I think, over the prior three months of pretty consistent play to look at the dispersion of shots that you you would hit. If you haven't shanked a shot in three months, then yeah. If you do, you can get a little pissed off and try to figure out what's going on or just slough it aside. Off. It's like, yeah. it just, yeah, it's just not part of who I am right now. So don't worry about it. And that's, I think, what tour players do quite well, They because they implicitly know that it's 
not coming from I love my mechanics. Fa- my, my favorite tour player move is they're still stamping those spike marks, even though people stamped them beforehand. Like they blame the every putt still on the spike <laughs> marks, and I think it's a brilliant like psychological tactic because it's not their fault. Totally, <laughs> it's someone else's fault. <laughs> I mean, well, that's that is a Jack, Jack Nicholas quote, right? He never he never missed a putt. He never missed a putt right? inside of three feet, he, right? <laughs> yeah, he just never never from resort. Yeah, so I think kind of just like normalizing that dispersion is really important, but it takes you know, kind of reshaping your own sense of confidence, right? That that just because you have those shots as a possibility doesn't mean that it takes away from the good shots. And just because you have these good shots doesn't mean it takes away. It's like you are the sum total of that as a golfer. And accepting all of that is, I think, part of what's actually going to make you be a lot more in control. Yeah, I've used uh, the analogy of the stock market, you know, as your your average scores being the the moving average but then you've got a lot of variance up and down either side of that and you know that helped me understand learning that you know sometimes you can be moving the moving average up you know improving your overall game but you're just in the the bottom part of the variance and you could be shooting worse scores at that time i often say that if you know if your game is in that c game area that's the time you should be buying into yourself really and saying you know this is going to be okay i'm still i'm still good here whereas you know if you're well above the moving average that's where you should be selling really and saying you know i'm a, I'm a little <laughs> bit better than i should be right here because it can be a problem right when you're playing your best the tendency in trading as well as everybody wants to buy in more at that point the golf version of that would be i want to make my strategy more aggressive you know i'm playing well let's start firing more at pins let's see if i can get more out of this and that's when a stock market crash can happen effectively yeah 100% i mean the overconfidence that feeds that the the greed that feeds that is not just a pro- i mean it's it's every, it's it's everywhere in performance the baseball player who's you know on a hot streak tries to you know extend a single into a double I think for, for each player to kind of understand how to manage those situations. So for me, my stock kind of answer to those times where you're playing really well is if you become more aware of how well you're playing, by definition, your, your mental edge is kind of gone at that point. That's the fastest way to know that you're not in the zone anymore. You're not in that space. How do you get back to it? And that's, that's kind of like the magic question. I think trying to take control is the most common answer, right? You, in whatever way that means, whether it's being more aggressive off the tee with putts. And I, for me, the answer is return to B game, right? Just go back to something that is really solid, fire more at middle of the greens or whatever would be a more conservative in your mind target and start to kind of build the momentum back up. And if you are still in a very good space with your swing and your technique, mentality wise, you're not far off. So it's going to be easier for you to just sort of naturally climb back up. But if you keep forcing it, you're trying to take control of something you don't have full control of. You do not, you do not control your A game. You have a lot of control in your B game. You also don't have a lot of control in your C game unless you're well-prepared. And that's what I do with all my clients. Like we, we are game planning for C game. That is our number one priority. High-level competition, doesn't matter what it is. High-level competition is first and foremost a battle of whose C game is the strongest. That is what is required to thrive under pressure. So for anybody who wants to be able to handle pressure better, be prepared for your C game, right? Understand where your swing mechanics break down and find the one or two things from a mental standpoint, from a technique standpoint, that'll allow you to suck less. And the sucking less continually over time, getting lots of repetition where, you know, you want that bottom end of that range to just creep up a little bit. 
it takes a lot of resilience. It takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of effort to put your mind in there with the effort and intensity. But to me, the analogy is like building muscle in the gym. Where's the greatest gains come from? It comes from those last couple reps where you're trying to squeeze out and like your muscles are burning and it's really, really hard. The first couple reps are easy. There's not a lot to gain there. So you're not really improving unless you're improving when it's hard. And most golfers, in my experience, even tour players, are not well prepared to suck less. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. That's the one thing that you know, when I first started writing articles on practical golf, that was the thing I noticed in my game as I got better is that I had to dig in more on the crap days. And it was so hard because you just want to give up. You want to like lose your focus, not do your routine, pick the targets, all that stuff. Like you just want to give up and kind of phone it in for the day. And I started writing articles about that. And people are like, this doesn't sound like fun. I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you. And I got better at, at explaining that scenario where people can take pride in it. But the, the guy who did it for me, like I wouldn't say that there's so much people can learn from Tiger Woods in his game. But the one thing that I learned from obsessively watching him over the years, as you mentioned, his cut streak, 
every Friday afternoon I was watching him and he didn't have it. And you could tell most other tour players would have phoned it in and they're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to miss this cut. He just always found a way to get that focus back and he never gave up and he always took pride in his game. Even at that Masters a couple of years ago when he made, what was he, he made a, a 10 on number 12 at Augusta and then he made five birdies afterwards. The tournament was over for him, but it was the most embarrassing moment in his career. But he he just had so much pride in his game that he would not give up. And I think not that everyone needs Tiger's level of intensity on that, but that is when you say your C game is like you need a little bit of that grit. We've talked about grit on the show before, whatever term you want to use for it. But you have to be able to find a way to stay engaged, I think, is one of the hardest things to do for golfers when they're really struggling. Yeah, and there's a lot of negative thinking that comes up around them. It's easy just to let yourself get pulled down. And I'm not saying that what we're suggesting here is easy, right? As you said, it's, it's hard and not fun, but I think you, if you look at what your goals are, and most of you are here because you want to enjoy the game more and play better and shoot lower scores. And so you're going to enjoy the other times, right? It's like, why, why are you in the gym? You're not there because that's the thing that you want to do. You're doing it because it's going to make you healthier, stronger. It's going to allow you to play with your kids, your grandkids, or what. It's like you're doing it for other purposes. And so digging yourself out of those times is not for that moment. It's for the other moments because it's going to make everything that much better. Jared, you're going to try and write a golf book now, correct? I am. Yeah. I feel like there's, it's the plan. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, listen, I know there's a lot of golf books out there, but I do feel like I've got something unique to say. And so I would not write a book if I didn't think I had something different and valuable. So we're going to maybe help Jared with maybe this is the first interactive experience we've had on the sweet spot before, but here's a call out to our listeners. You're looking for some golfers to work with, correct? Like when you, like when you wrote, I read your poker book, you had some, you had some stories about players you worked with and you need those stories for the golf book. So give us like a quick request of what you're asking for. If if someone wants to raise their hand in this project of yours. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed in golf books is that they tend to provide a lot of anecdotes from pros. And I feel like the missing link is what are the real stories from golfers of all, all abilities. And so I've got my system. I want to apply my system to you. And so there's a survey. John's going to give the link here in a second that I want you to fill out. And I'm going to basically provide you coaching at a very, very low rate. And I say that mostly because I'm not going to do it for free because then you're not going to care, right? If you had a little skin in the game, you're going to provide that because you got to put work into this in order to make it work. But whether it's one-on-one coaching, some group coaching, some webinars, like you fill out the survey and do a good job with it. I will provide you some useful advice in return that I'll get stories that I can use for the book out of this and some anecdotes. Because to me, what have been successful about the poker books and the trading book is a kind of my ability to kind of get into your head in a way that makes it feel like, you know, that I understand what you're going through and the situations and to provide very practical advice that is, you know, kind of easy to use. So yeah, we all do that. And it's a win-win for everybody. Cool. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes. So you can go to that um, now or after the episode. I'll try and read it out here. It's uh, surveymonkey.com forward slash R as in Robert, then another forward slash JT golf as in Jared Tendler golf. So surveymonkey.com forward slash R forward slash JT golf. And how many golfers are you looking for? Hopefully to fill this out. What do we need? Like 30, 40, 50, a thousand? Yeah. yeah we get, <laughs> if, if I get, if I get a hundred total responses, I'll be thrilled and there'll be some kind of 
conglomeration of individual group, you know, some workshops, seminars, some email, whatever it is. But bottom line is I'll, I'll make it a win-win for everybody. Cool. Well, hopefully a sweet spot listener will be in your forthcoming golf book. Adam, I cut you off earlier. Go back to your question. I apologize. I was thinking of some of Tiger's interviews when he was at his peak to go to that trading analogy as well. If you've got your moving average and then you've got the variance either side of it, your better games and your worst games. And something that I can't remember who highlighted it to me, but I started noticing more and more is that when Tiger was playing poorly, in interviews, he would often build himself up. So, you know, the interviewers say, oh, Tiger, you had a bad game today. You shot 73, 74. And he's like, well, I'm still in the hunt. I know I can do this next week. I've been working on a few things. They didn't quite come through on the game today, but I'm feeling it. It's almost there. He would build himself back up. And then on the flip side of that, when he was above his moving average, you know, say he shot a 63 or something, they'd, they'd interview him and say, you played so well, you're, you're going to win this tournament. And he'd say, well, you know, I've still got some work to do. He'd actually, <laughs> he'd actually drop himself down back to that moving average himself. And whether that was a conscious thing or not, I don't know. But, you know, he'd say, yeah, I made, made a few lucky putts out there. You know, he'd, he'd never he'd never do what the amateurs would do, right? The amateurs, you think the opposite. When they're playing awful, what do they do to themselves? They tell themselves, oh, it's rubbish today. It's awful. I've lost it. I'm never going to get it back. And they cause their own golf depression. Even when they're above their moving average and they play their best game, they then build themselves up further to where they're not. And that can cause that that crash well below the moving average again. So, yeah. All yeah, that's, that's interesting about Tiger. I, I would Knowing what I know about him, there's no chance that that is not planned or controlled. What I would say about the golfers and the description you gave there is that I don't agree necessarily that it's that they're causing their own demise. Yes, there is that sort of negative spiral that happens when they're playing poorly. And then the positive spiral that leads to the negative spiral when they're playing really well. These are reactions, right? The emotional reaction that they have to a bad day, to a bad shot, to a missed putt, to a bad break, right? These are not things that are in our control in that moment. Right. They become in our control the more we understand them, we understand their nature, we understand the underlying cause. That's how you can kind of deactivate them and kind of clean out the crap in your mind in a sense. But at the moment, right, if your default is to react to, let's just say like a, a tough tee shot where you know your predominant miss is, let's say, to the right and there's water over there. To react to that shot with, that, with fear would be perfectly normal and reasonable. So how do you clean that out to make your make it easier for you to react to the shot with more objectivity and more of a strategic, okay, well, I clearly need to hit, aim farther left and allow for, the, for that variability to be there versus kind of getting a bit paralyzed and kind of the deer in headlights where your mind is just obsessively tuned in and aware. I've heard the, the phrase a lot, right? The mind doesn't know the word no, right? And so in that moment, there's like a gravitational force of like, don't go right. And I think a lot of that is because that's where your focus is. And so how do you kind of debug the system? Well, it's not in that moment. It's by understanding that, okay, I don't want to lose confidence here, right? Hitting a poor shot where I don't want it to go is going to eat away at my confidence. It's going to make me think that I'm worse, which is of course, objectively, we can say is not fair because actually that is the golfer you are. But this person has an inherent desire to feel like they're better than they are, right? And so that would be an example of, of what then could create that sort of snowball of negative thinking 
I know this is different than how a lot of players think because they think the negative thinking is the problem. And I'm saying it's a symptom. I've hit tons of good golf shots with negative thoughts in my mind. The negative thoughts are not causing your poor shots. It's believing that the negative thoughts are causing the thinking. That's that's why it happens. There's a, a cool quote from Cam Smith that came out recently about his win at the British. And he said that his hands went numb during the final stretch, like the 14 through through 18. I think he, I went back and looked at it. So he buried 13. You know, it was his fourth birdie in a row. And at that point now, he's tied for the lead. I think on 14 is when he took the lead or tied for the lead. Whatever. I mean, I don't know it was. 13, he got into this, was in contention. 14 tied for the lead. So his hands were numb. And if we recall that up and down he made from around the road hole bunker on 17, which that is, was one of the best shots. That was one unbelievable. of the best in the history of golf. Yeah, and so, so like, how do you how do you hit that putt with your hands being numb? You hit that putt with your hands being numb because you know that it's immaterial, right? The eye opening for me was one of the basic flaws for me in what caused me to choke was thinking that the nerves, the intense nerves that I felt were bad, right? That I wasn't supposed to feel this nervous. I knew tour players felt nervous. I didn't think they felt this nervous. And so it was bad for me to be thinking this way because it was, I was feeling it. Then I felt worse as a result. And so, yes, the negative thinking and our false perceptions can pile on top of it, 100%. But it's not the original cause. I was qualifying for the Publinks a couple years after I'd kind of had the, this aha and had a four-foot putt for like a really, really great up and down on the first hole, right? I was short-sighted in a bunker. We can debate the, 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 the shot selection to even be there, but made a great bunker shot to four feet and had a slick downhill putt. If I don't make it, there's a pretty good chance of three putting. My hands were visibly shaking. I stepped back and I just reminded myself, it doesn't matter. does not matter. And I got up and made the putt right in the center of the cup. And so that was like a big kind of transformation in my mind was like understanding that if I'm not feeling nerves in these moments, I don't care. And that was actually part of my problem this past summer. Like I actually didn't feel nervous enough, not because I didn't care, it's because my focus has really been, you know, kind of lacking. So we're not going to turn this into a story about my golf game. But the point <laughs> is, like, the underlying causality is what we really want to kind of get after. And so the negative thinking is not the problem. It's And so then, yeah, I'm not causing this. I Like, the, the term self-sabotage, delete it. It's, it is a garbage term. Nobody here is good enough to self-sabotage our games, right? If it's happening, it's because there are underlying flaws that are tripping you up in ways that you don't realize. One of my own stories from that was probably about, yeah, about a year ago now, I got a new driver and I went out and played with a buddy of mine who's about 10 handicap. And at the end of the round, you know, he was having a bad day, especially driving the ball. He was hitting everywhere. And he said, I'd love to be as confident as you are. He said, you know, you've hit every fairway today. And I look back and I was like, shit, yeah, I've, I have actually hit every fairway today so far. And I said, you know what? I've stood over every ball, just not confident at all, having no idea. Literally, I stood over every ball <laughs> thinking I have no idea where this is going to go. I've got a new driver. I didn't even warm up with it. I hit some balls on a simulator, but you know, simulator, the real golf can sometimes, that indoor swing syndrome can give different patterns. I've often played some really good golf feeling incredibly unconfident. Your focus is probably sharper, right? You're like probably more focused on what you need to do to get in, to get it where you want it to be and like kind of taking your time through your pro to your pre-shot and picking out yeah, targets. Maybe. And 
I mean, I think if I go back to my mindset on that, it was it was a case of I'm standing over it thinking, oh, my God, I haven't got a clue where this is going. And then it's like, you know, just just let it go. Just accept a wider outcome. So it was more of I'm mm. going to accept anything that happens here. And that allowed me to free myself up then. But, yeah, I didn't feel confident over the golf ball. I didn't have any clue. You know, even though the ball was going down the fairway, I didn't stand over it thinking that was going to happen. It was more of I'm going to accept whatever the hell happens here. Yeah, everything you just said is incredibly powerful. And, yeah, I I think becoming a parent helped me with that in golf too. And I realized I could make putts, not make putts on the last hole. And like, I'm going to go home and like the kids are going to be like, Oh, whatever. <laughs> the tournament was important to me, but they have like no clue what, what's going on. Like that actually their lack of perspective helps me be more free with the results on the course, because I know it's going to be okay either way. And like, it's not that big of a deal in, in the scheme of things. And yeah, I think a lot of golfers probably, and I was too for a long time. You have to be under the impression that like you can't play good golf while being nervous. And that is absolutely not true because first of all, it's impossible not to be nervous. Like how can a human not be nervous for something they care about intensely and there's pressure and competition? Like that's quite normal. I'm glad you brought that up too, because it is, yeah, people always message me about the first T nerves and like being, it's a lot of it has to do with like the embarrassment of the confessional booth messages I get in my email inbox and DMs. I find for most normal golfers is more about the embarrassment factor in front of other players. Like a lot of it boils down to that. Yeah. And, and I would, I would bet, and I like, I'm not going to say this is for everybody, but I would bet that a lot of it is this sort of classic, like psychological projection. I despise psychological terms in, in situations like this. The reason I use it is because it's describing how that fear of embarrassment is not about the other players. Because we all objectively know that nobody else cares, right? It's all about how much, how much of a good playing partner you are, how good of a person you are. Like it's, it's more about the your character on the course than it is about your your competency as a player. We all know that, but yet we still succumb to this feeling like we want to. Pr- it's it's all about you. That that's what it is. We're we're all selfish <laughs> here. Okay, you don't want to embarrass yourself because you expect more of yourself. You don't want to duff it off the first tee. You don't want to hit it in the woods. You don't you don't want to get off to a bad start. It's it is all about how you want to start the round. So part of it, I think, is just being a little bit more honest that that is probably the case. And if it's not that, if it's not that, then figure out what else the embarrassment is really about. Because it's, again, very unlikely to be what other players are thinking about you. The thing that I would say to begin making those first tee first jitters a bit easier is two things. Number one, the more you can understand that, that kind of base level fear, pressure, nerves as a distraction and accept it as that, the easier it will be to kind of redirect it. So for example, let's say you guys can do this. People listening can do this. Whatever's kind of touching the ground, whether it's your feet, if you're walking somewhere, or if you're sitting on a chair, feel your butt in the chair, right? And I want you to feel what that feels like, right? Just feel your feet on the ground, feel your butt in the chair while I continue to talk and just try to pay attention to my voice while also paying attention to the feeling of your feet in the chair and your butt on the ground vice versa with my dyslexia. <laughs> Point being, you should have a little bit of interference as you're kind of toggling between focusing on my voice and the internal sensations. And that effectively is what is happening when you're feeling that pressure. Your mind goes in inside. You're, you're focused now on the nerves in your stomach, how your hands feel different, how your legs feel heavy. That's what you begun focus more on. The easiest way to kind of train yourself out of this 
again, is to suck less here. So just push yourself to be more externally focused on your target, on your shot shape, on something out in front of you that is not inside. You will handle pressure better just from that alone. The second one is one that not a lot of players are going to like, but I, I can be a bit heavy handed sometimes. Stop taking mulligans. Mulligans, in my mind, make you weaker because they take the training effect out. I mean, one of the greatest things for me, I've played probably on average about 12 rounds over the last seven, eight years. I've got an eight-year-old. I just can't play as much. And so I've, I've figured out how to play good golf without playing a lot. I qualified for the 2013 Mid-Am shooting one under par. That qualifying round was quite literally my 12th round of golf that year. And this past year was very much the same deal. I've purposefully showed up to golf courses, not tournaments, but showed up to golf courses, doing the classic kind of trunk slamming thing where put on my shoes, go to the first tee and, and just make a couple of rehearsal swings to test myself to be able to handle a situation like a first tee with, I don't want to say greater ease, but to, like to make it easier to do that because I'm putting myself in a very difficult situation on purpose. I don't know what I have that day. I'm just going to go out and going to find it and play with it. It's made my game a lot hardier. And frankly, I actually am pretty good off the first tee without having any warm up now. And, and so when, when you have your that kind of out, like, oh, breakfast balls available if you want it, you're just weakening your mind and making it easier for you to succumb to the pressure, whether it shows up on the first tee or elsewhere. Love it. That's gold. Really well said. I know we don't have you forever, but can we talk about tilt a little bit? Yeah. That's the one that fascinates me the most. When I talk about tilt, it's like the the very basic, normal version that I think most people who played some poker or watched poker and they know it is you're making suboptimal decisions after a bad beat. Is, is, that's one of the definitions that's kept thrown around. In your book, The Mental Game of Poker, you've got, I don't know, I have a list here like Accumulated tilt, win, winner's tilt, running bad tilt, injustice tilt, hate losing, <laughs> mistake tilt, entitlement tilt. There's a lot of tilts in there. I don't expect you to go through all of them. I can. I mean, <laughs> yeah. For a golfer, how do you think, what's the tilt that shows up on the golf course and, and how can you deal with it? Answer that all in five minutes. Solve it for everyone. <laughs> the entitlement tilt is the classic, your expectations are too high and so you're getting pissed off, but you're actually not good enough to get pissed off. Right. So I love that one. That was me right. for like 12 years. <laughs> one day I finally said it. I'm like, you're not good enough to be <laughs> angry at yourself. <laughs> yeah. Honesty is a powerful thing, man. So entitlement tilt, then injustice tilt is like getting pissed off because bad things happen. But let me just go back to the definition of tilt for a second. Because for me, when I was researching the poker book and just looking at, for the most part, tilt is just anger. It is just anger leading to you doing dumb things. This is just like the anger that spills out on the golf course. And it can show up for a variety of reasons. Yes, getting bad breaks is a big one. And the bad breaks are going to usually cause bigger problems as they accumulate, right? We all can kind of deal with one or two. But when it's a series of them and maybe against the same player that you've been playing with, you know, in your group for the last few weeks and maybe on a particular hole where you're just catching the top of lip of this bunker, you know, trying to fly. Seems to the personal. Green. Seems personal at that moment, right? It certainly can. Yeah. I mean, I think just as a, a simple heuristic, if you take something personally on the golf course, it's a personal issue. There's nothing to do with golf at it. Right. There's there's a difference between performance problems, right? So you're there's fundamental misunderstandings of the performance arena, and there are certain performance flaws that will emerge from there. 
But then below that is the sort of personal layer where our personal issues spill out onto the golf course. So if you have high expectations of yourself in life, in work, et cetera, and you bring those high expectations on the golf course, that is not a golf performance problem. That is a global problem that you have across the board, which is cool in my mind, because now you have a chance to kind of practice to correct it in multiple ways. That kind of cross-training is really powerful once you figure out the correction. High expectations are part of the injustice tilt. Mistake tilt is a big one, you know, where you're in golf, just hitting shots that you would say are significantly worse than what you would expect of yourself. Or it could be a decision-making error where you know that you should not have been aiming at that flag, but you were maybe a little bit overconfident, a little wind tilting. And so then it kind of bites you in the ass. But the bottom line is like, whatever the source of the tilt is, whatever the cause or type of the tilt is, it's going to lead you to make poor decisions and hit worse shots. Anger by its nature tends to shrink the thinking part of the brain in a way that makes you not think at all, right? You kind of become much more reactive. Anxiety or fear tends to shrink the thinking part of the brain in a way that makes you overthink and then not think about the right stuff. So in both scenarios, it's helpful to have that sort of suck less decision-making process just one or two things that you can add to get you to rethink the types of decisions that you're going to attempt to hit. Playing it safe in those situations tends to be the easiest way to start to get yourself back. It's tough for golfers to want to do that, right? Because they want to, they want what they want. But yeah, I mean, tilt has a mind of its own. Another way I, I would think about it, and you know, I'll give credit to a lot of this with Scott Fawcett and Decade stuff, is if you can make more decisions before you step on the golf course and have a system to make those decisions. I think a lot of golfers make mistakes. Someone invited me on a podcast last week and they were talking about, oh, well, you know, if you're not feeling it, you should change your decisions. I'm like, well, I think it's quite the opposite. I think you should, if you have a optimal plan and you believe in it, you know, you kind of have to don't let the emotions take over. Like if you did get anxious or angry at yourself and then you start making the crappier decisions like firing at the flags or trying to ram putts in the hole or hitting driver where you shouldn't or even not hitting driver where you shouldn't, sometimes you get too conservative and you hit iron. And I find that when you make those decisions beforehand with the help of someone like Scott or another coach who says like, okay, this is your decision tree. Let's stick with this no matter what. It gives, I've found more comfort in that under pressure. And that removes the ability like, yeah, if I do get pissed at myself, I'm saying like, you know what, I guess I'm a little angry right now, but I'm still going to make this same decision because I know it's the right one. Anything makes sense of what I just said there? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think so that's going to remove the tilt element, right? Yeah. But it's not going to necessarily remove the anger. No. So, yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah. yeah, the anger shows up and and I, I mean, personally, like I've been able not to remove anger entirely, but like I'm 95% less angry when I play golf than I did 15 years ago. I feel yeah, not that I don't awesome. curse at myself sometimes and it, it comes out, but I've had to find ways to answer that problem. I don't see that as problematic. I think for me, when I look at it from a performance standpoint, it's like, is it materially affecting your shot making, your, mm-hmm. your, your decision making? And if the answer is no, then it doesn't matter. I think there's okay. been a trend, especially in junior golf. I see this a lot to try to like neutralize the experience of any emotion on the golf course. And it's just, it's just dead wrong in my opinion, right? I'm not saying allow yourself to just become, you know, a complete monkey on the golf course where you're breaking clubs and become a, a club chucker. Be human. 
still? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For me, it's like, if you're going to do the work on the side, after you have a day where you get angry or, and maybe don't make a mistake, like if you want to not feel angry in the golf course, then you've got to do some analysis afterwards. So for me, emotional control is something that you want to use only on the golf course to kind of keep your proverbial shit together. But then off the golf course, if you don't want to f- keep feeling that way, then you've got to break it down and understand what's at the, at the source of it so that you can weave in a correction that over time is going to change your reactions, right? We want your reactions to be cleaner and pure because when that happens, you're going to be able to access intuition more often. You're going to be able to get in the zone more often and more easily. The zone is not something that I think a lot of golfers think of as something that can be controlled. By its nature, it feels like it just sort of shows up randomly and we all want to kind of hold on to it. But it's more like a mixture or a formula you can kind of cook up. And once you understand those factors that are at play there, some of which includes anger. When I'm working with newer clients, very often it is fear or anger that drives the zone. And that's fine. I mean, Jordan, Michael Jordan, it is not not Jordan uh, Spieth, Michael Jordan, and I think Tiger at times were masters at using anger to fuel the zone. Right. They at times had a harder time kind of finding that way of staying there when there wasn't negative things happening. The nature, the mixture, the formula is personal and it can change over time. But being aware of what that is, I think, is really essential. So, yeah, if you want to play your best more often, my bias is we want to remove more of the emotional volatility that can sort of spring up in all these seemingly random places, but aren't random. And so, you know, when I talk with traders and poker players, they tend to take this a lot more seriously because there's a lot of money on the line. So for the recreational golfer, like what's the motivation to really get you better? What's the motivation to want you, want you to do this, this kind of work, right? If you've read your books and feel like you're not able to kind of still put things together, maybe it's the psychological work that is not necessarily the missing link, but at least another linchpin that needs to get addressed. And so what I would strongly suggest you do is start to track your emotions throughout the round, right? Particularly like where are these sort of hotbed moments where it's either some extra fear, some loss of confidence, some overconfidence, some anger, some tilt, where does it pop up? And if you can start to track that and then afterwards, write down what was going through your mind, what changes in your behavior occurred, right? Did your tempo, did your posture change, whether, you know, in between shots or actually over the ball, pre-shot routine change, like start to really analyze what was going on at that time. That becomes your way of starting to map the patterns that exists within your own mind and within your own game. If you don't have that, right, there's no way to improve, right? You can't correct a problem you can't see. And a lot of golfers, they are aware of the problems as they occur. But when I start working with a client for the first time, right, I have them fill out a questionnaire that's very similar to the survey that we posted. They get about 80% of it in that questionnaire, which takes some time to review. The missing 20% is because they're not actually taking notes around this in as much detail as I think is required to, to truly understand what's happening. Cause you don't have the ability to like capture video of your, of your mind. So you've got to be the one kind of capturing that swing video in an allergistic kind of way for your emotions. And if you do that, it's not going to be the answer, right? That just cause you can see it doesn't mean you can stop it, but you can't correct it until you can see it. Do you think there are levels to this as well in terms of, I think you alluded to this at the start that, you know, lots of what we, talk about and try to suppress things like fear things like maybe somatic responses like your hands going numb shaking they're all just symptoms of the underlying 
unconscious belief system. I use the analogy of if you put me in a room with a tiger that I know is tame and is not going to kill me or anything, but if you lock me in a cage with that tiger, I'm going to be shaking. No matter how much you tell me, I do not have any belief system that that is not going to eat me. Whereas you can put a tiger tamer in there who's brought up that tiger and they wouldn't have any somatic responses at all because we have different belief systems. The, the scenario is still the same. We just got different belief systems. So No, no, I 100% agree. And I think to talk about like the scale of this, the scale is that our emotions rise they can escalate. And we all know this, right? When we talk about, all right, well, you missed the first putt, burn the edge, fine, whatever. Second one, uh, kind of start. And then the third or fourth one, now all of a sudden, now you're tilting, right? Now you're pissed off and now you're going to do something dumb. So it's usually at that point where people try to start to make some corrections when really what they need to do is correct it after the first one. This is a fundamental rule of how the brain operates that I think everybody should have kind of tattooed on the inside of your brain. If you remember this, it will make lots of things easier. The emotional system has the power to shut down higher brain function, right? So your ability to think, to plan, to make decisions. If you have thoughts in your mind that's occurring in a space called working memory, this is one of those higher brain functions that, that shrinks. So the more your emotions escalate, the more that space shrinks really down to nothing, right? So you get into a blind rage, into a blind panic. That's like a description of your mind being completely shut off. And you're just kind of purely emotional at that point. So here's what, the kicker though. One of those higher brain functions is emotional control. Okay, If I slice the top of your head off and do a brain scan, you'll see a part uh, of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And in an MRI, right, brain scan, if I'm asking you to suppress emotional reactions, that part of the brain is red hot, okay? But as your emotions rise to a point where they're actually shutting down that part of the brain, your ability to control your emotions goes out the window. So one of the illusions of control is the illusion of emotional control. People think that at all times, they should have the ability to control their emotions. And the functionality of the brain says no, okay? So it's just a sadistic wiring, right? The part of the brain responsible for emotional control is shut down by your emotions. <laughs> the way we get around this is by kind of mapping your pattern, by understanding the escalation of emotions that occur for you, whether it's pressure, whether it's tilt, whether it's loss of confidence or overconfidence. If you can't see the early signs of this escalation, you will not have the ability to gain control. You're going to get steamrolled. And you're going to need something kind of lucky to happen in that moment to get you out of it. Now, if we're talking about pressure, especially for, for tournament players, a lot of times we're talking about what you're doing the night before, right? So many players experience so much pressure the night before that they end up on the first tee kind of flat, right? They actually aren't really nervous anymore. They're just kind of dead inside. And, and that's, a, that's a function of you burning so much energy, you're actually tired. So yeah, you've got to be kind of going through like a, a pre-tournament process to deal with your emotions at that point. But it doesn't matter where they occur. If they're going to cause you problems on the course, you've got to kind of, again, map that pattern, understand the escalation, learn to take action when your brain is actually capable of doing that. Are the answers wildly different? Like if you worked, I'll use Adams, if you worked with a hundred golfers and you got down to the root, you know, you're, you're cracking open their brains and getting deep into their psyche the answers are 
very different. They're actually very similar. They're actually very similar. That's kind of the fun part. And I think why my books have been successful is because there's so much diversity on the surface, right? There's so much yep. different ways. In which- so I mean, we all present ourselves very differently. That's what, that was my point. Is like it, you ain't that different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all we're all the same inside there, right? <laughs> and that's what makes it easier, right? So if I look at the biggest kind of flaws, biases that are out there, confirmation bias, right? Like the desire to want what we want to be right, right? So you want your decision to be right. You want big one for golfers is hindsight bias. Right. It's the classic, you know, kind of after the round or even after the shot, like, I know I should have done X. Right. You kind of start deleting scores off your scorecard, but don't actually do anything to change your foresight. Right. Foresight is what golf is all about. Hindsight is, of course, 2020. Hating mistakes, hating losing, high expectations, illusions of control, illusions of learning. Yeah, this is less for I'll say just because it's a fun one. Uh, The shitty psychic. People think that they can kind of predict the future. They know what's going to kind of come. They think they know that they're going to play well today. Right? I'm sure that's a good one for your trader clients. It's a good one for them. Yeah. And, and poker players too, right? And poker, I'm like, sure, yeah. Yeah. I've talked about like kind of the faulty beliefs about anxiety. What about fear? If I had to like, maybe you and I are going to work together or you're going to crack open my brain, but I think that's the one, you know, when I play in tournaments and maybe I have to like back up a good round the next day or something like that, I'm starting to in the most pressure, like coming up against some fear there. That could be a whole separate episode, but thoughts on fear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I had to pinpoint it, I'm like, I'm like worried about not playing well, I guess, is, is my main worry. It's just like I'm not gonna rise to the occasion. Sometimes I really feel that fear when I'm in a tournament. Yeah. So your expectations are probably too high. Yeah. And usually is in the rounds where, you know, some tournaments I'll play where it's, you know, two rounds. I think the thing I'm coming up against now is like, I'll play really well in the first round, maybe get myself into contention. And then I'm so uncomfortable in that situation because I haven't necessarily backed up that good round yet. I just don't have enough experience that I get fearful. And that's something I'm learning as I, as I go along, getting a little bit better at it. But yeah, I think that's one of the main things I struggle with in, in competition. Yeah. So we'll come back to you in a sec. The bigger... Sorry, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to make this about me on the couch, but I was just that's okay. coming up we with an idea there. <laughs> So the cool thing is that the emotions of overconfidence, lack of confidence, anger, fear, motivation, we can throw in the mix here too. All of those emotions are vulnerable to those underlying flaws, biases, wishes, illusions, et cetera, right? So all of those individual things can produce any of those emotions, right? People are going to differ in terms of which ones they're going to predominantly experience. So it might be fear for you, anger for somebody else, but you might both have high expectations of yourself. It's just going to emerge in different ways. So just is kind of just trying to deduce and figure out what is actually at the root of it, right? So we use all the data points on the surface to kind of, yeah, dig down and figure out what the hell is going on. So number one for you is probably some expectations, right? That you can back up a good round, but we know a game to a game, right? Just because it happens once, actually the, prob- the probability of it happening two days in a row is now the same which is low, right? 10 to 15% chance on that second day. Now, the other thing is that if it's a two-day tournament, second day is kind of like a Sunday at a PGA Tour event. So yeah, those days are harder because now you're kind of running into the finish line. And so if you're expecting yourself to play as well under tougher conditions, that would be a second way that your expectations are probably a little bit off. So what's the antidote here? I, I think the number one reaction I get when I say, you know, you have an issue with high expectations. People think that I'm trying to lower expectations and I'm not. 
Okay, lowering expectations is not the antidote. The antidote is to eviscerate them, destroy them. They are worthless in my mind because in my mind, from a personal standpoint, right, you can only actually truly expect your worst because it's the only thing that you can guarantee to occur. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Right? So that's the thing. And I'm I'm not saying that that we're aspiring towards that. I'm saying that from an expectation standpoint, implicitly expectations in people's mind implies a guarantee. They think that this is what's going to happen. Even if subconsciously they know that they shouldn't expect it or consciously they know they shouldn't expect it, but subconsciously they kind of wish that it were going to happen, want it to happen. So when you eviscerate them, it all turns into a goal. And so we kind of turn that C game, B game, A game into a ladder. And the game becomes how high can I climb? And the challenge becomes how high can I climb? And the challenge becomes figuring out all of the variables that you can take control of to reliably make your B game or A game happen on days that are very tough. You know, and so like working with the PGA Tour players that I've worked with, two of which have won, I can't say their names, we were problem solving for the toughest scenarios because under the toughest scenarios, that's where our weaknesses come out, both from a technical standpoint and from a, a mental standpoint. So yeah. The, the cool thing about pressure is that we get to see our problems in bigger form. The bad thing is if you don't know how, how to correct them, then you're going to have some problems. I'd imagine one of the hardest things, I think with all mental type advice or even strategic is that it sounds so simple when you're not in the arena, right? Like you explaining this to me right now, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then when I get in the arena, all these things are going to pop up again. So I guess it's the, I assume when you work with tour players, it's, this is a long-term commitment for them because- you have to keep coming back and forth and getting feedback and working on it because just understanding it isn't enough, right? Because if it were that easy, then everyone could just solve this stuff overnight. Totally. And if it were that easy, doctors wouldn't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> Education is not enough, right? That we know that. So what is it? You, it's, it's about training. So for me, the kind of in-game framework has four steps. So the first step is recognition. Right. So we've kind of talked about like the mapping process and understanding your emotions and how they escalate and when they escalate and why in the moment you got to see it early. The second step is to disrupt the momentum of that reaction in some form. Right. So emotions have a momentum all to themselves. Right. So first law of thermodynamics, I think object emotion stays in motion unless acted upon by outside force. So you're kind of having to be the outside or the internal force acting against your own internal force. That's what has to happen. So you can disrupt momentum in several ways. Number one, just take a couple of deep breaths. Right? Now, I know in many cases, this is kind of viewed as like a meditative mindfulness kind of thing. I'm not suggesting it as that. If you want it to be that way, fine. I'm not opposed to it. For me, it's just get your mind off the emotion and onto something else for five seconds because you're like readying yourself for the correction. Okay. So another form of disruption would be swinging the club a little bit. It's like looking at nature, looking at the golf course, just picking out an, you know, something I would just watch another player hit a ball, anything, do five jumping jack. I don't care. Anything disrupt the momentum of that emotion. And then step three is, is the challenging one. It's going to, this is where the practice comes in. Okay. It's to what I call inject logic. So if we know that the underlying flaw, we know what that is. The logic that we are injecting is prepared ahead of time. It is studied. It is reviewed. You know, it so well, if I wake you up at 4am smacking you across the face saying, tell me what your injecting logic statement is. You can say it like that, right? We want to to know it cold, right? If you know it that well, it is going to have the potency 
to inject it into that core flaw because that's what you're correcting. You're not correcting the emotion. You're not correcting the negative thoughts. You're correcting the core flaw or bias or illusion. And so that injecting logic statement is your way to gain command of your emotions in that space. If you wait too long and your emotions are too big, guess what? Injecting logic is just a fancy way of saying thinking. Thinking part's gone and that logic is going to maybe be there and then kind of tantalize you because it's like, oh, I know how I should be thinking, but it ain't freaking working because it doesn't have enough strength because your mind is too weak. This is the spot where I think golfers inadvertently screw themselves because they do know the answers to a lot of this. Injecting logic, this stuff is not that complicated, but they're so poorly prepared that they get into a spot where they know how they should be thinking and it's not actually working. And then they get more upset. They feel more fear because of that scenario. And it's because they're expecting their mind to be powerful enough to actually work. So fourth step is what I call a strategic reminder where now you're kind of getting yourself back to making good quality decisions. It's more of a technical thing than it is a mental thing. But but that's that process. It's not complicated, but it's certainly challenging to apply. And it takes a lot of work off the golf course to prepare yourself for it. Therein lies the problem because we work on the physical things in golf, right? You know, we talk about practice a lot on this. We talk about strategy, you know, planning, stuff like this. It's, I think it's hard because no one, I genuinely hope you write this book because you, you have a framework that people can adopt. It's hard to get, because you are going beyond the scratch the surface advice. You said like, you know, stuff that I've said that I've heard from other people and like it's been around, like it's good on the surface stuff, but then it's like, well, what if it doesn't work? Then what? <laughs> and, exactly. If it that, works, that, if it works, the, the problem is simple. Yeah, and that's great. Exactly. Yeah. But then for a lot of people, it doesn't work. Like I, I do see a lot of people on the golf course, like losing, losing their, their mind half the time and they're not happy. And I, I've been there too. And I, it's not fun. And that, that's really my, my main hope with a lot of this stuff, because we know a lot of people aren't aspiring to be like top 1% performers who are going to play in tournaments. For most people, it's like, how can I spend these four to five hours and like have a genuinely good experience and not beat myself up and not bring something home with me afterwards that affects the rest of my day? And that I think is a hard problem for a lot of people to solve because I get the emails all the time. How do I deal yeah, with this, uh, how do I deal with this playing partner's driving me crazy? How do I deal with me losing two balls off the tee? They're not easy questions to answer like in a singular statement. Yeah, I think the answer for the work off the golf course is like a month of work and then a year or two of application. Now I'm not saying it's a month of like full-time work, but it's just the consideration because once you get the framework for yourself personalized, then it's just about the on-course application and getting enough reps. One of the things I love about poker and trading is the frequency. I mean, like I said, Dusty was playing a million hands of poker a year. Yeah, you could test yourself all the time, right? Every day he was playing a 72-hole golf tournament. The training effect was massive and traders the same way. Golfers, it's the lag is so much longer, especially with the tour players. It's I've had to work on my own patience with it. It's get the kind of framework set and then apply it for a year or two and and you'll see dramatic differences with the uh, so i've often had this theory that you know we talk about these like somatic responses you know things that your brain starts to tell you like i'm not good enough or everything we talked about you know what are we 
what caused us to maybe play poorly for John? He said fear. That would be a big one for me as well. I know John and I have talked about even, you know, playing rounds of golf. Like I'm very confident in my own golf ability. Yet say I were to play in front of, say, the podcast listeners or something, I would immediately be fearful that, oh, well, what if I what if I don't play well in front of them? Then they're going to be thinking that, oh, maybe maybe Adam's stuff doesn't work or something like that. And so there's this fear. I think for me, at least, something that's really helped is understanding that all of this stems from ego, which is almost like I put it, I'm very evolutionary psychology. That's kind of where I go. And so I think you know, lots of these things are like, survival as well at the true base level you know for me for example if my fear would be that okay if i didn't play well people would think my my information is poor which is obviously illogical but it, it would be my fear which would lead to oh my business will start to fail because then people won't want to buy my books people won't want to buy my products he's a fraud <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah it's snake oil salesman no not that not that one but there's something yeah where you feel like you're not oh imposter syndrome imposter syndrome (laughs) is what i'm I'm looking at yeah and which is silly because you know i i like i said i'm confident in my own ability i i'm confident in what i teach and i have enough evidence i have lots of evidence of that you know i have emails every day people saying oh i love your programs things like that you know even things like the uh, the amount of people who say they didn't like my programs is minuscule. So I sh- there shouldn't be any reason based on evidence that I would think that. But there's still that such a deep level that goes below that that's probably built on millions, if not billions of years of evolution, saying that you have to survive here. And for me, that's always been the, the biggest thing, that if I can dismantle that, if I can dismantle the ego, you know, so f- say, for example, a practical example, when I'm hitting golf shots and I'm not playing well and I start to feel angry with myself, I start to say, well, you know, this is just my ego taking over here. This is just evolutionary instincts saying, you know, it's, it's, it's all bubbling up from really deep. And then just the act of me saying that, just, you know, imagining myself as a primitive monkey without any control of my <laughs> emotions it really helps me because it it helps me see the how ludicrous the situation is and see it for what it actually is so i i don't know i mean that's a a theory of mine that i found helped me a lot so the way that i would kind of frame it from my system is that what you're doing is a band-aid and you're going to have to keep doing it again and again and again and so it's not wrong it's not bad it obviously works for you but for me i would want to look at it slightly differently and say that ego is just confidence. And yes, we can look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. I think that's going a little bit too deep from a practical standpoint, other than what you're suggesting for yourself to kind of deal with it. But one kind of basic way that you could, I think, solve this would be to write up an essay, like a one pager that describes your accomplishments uh, as a professional, right, in this field, what you've done, maybe pull in some quotes that, that you really liked. You could think about how you were able to create this uh, program and and to become you know somebody that has been able to help thousands of golfers, right? And and you know so it's it's like kind of looking at your own development in in more kind of tangible terms and and appreciate those those steps and the mistakes and the learnings that you kind of went through. Because I think if you do that and then 
treat it almost like food where you're doing it daily, giving yourself a diet of that kind of praise and reinforcement. What you're doing is you are internalizing a knowledge of things that you already quote know, but haven't actually trained, right? There's just this perceptual gap that exists where you're conscious of it, but you haven't internalized it. It's the difference between having a swing thought versus just actually swinging that way, right? You know, the, the term I would use is unconscious competency, right? You've trained something so well that you don't, don't need to think about it anymore. Right now, you are not knowledgeable enough about what makes you incredibly skilled at what you do at that level, right? Or how you got there. There's just like a, a gap there. And I think if you fill that gap, then the questions either will go away entirely. That feeling of imposter syndrome will either go away entirely or it'll get you closer to identifying another flaw that may be kind of attached in this too, which may be a bit more socially related and kind of how you interact with, with people and come up with a couple of tactics that's, you know, able to kind of reframe it. Like if somebody were to criticize you, what would you say? And kind of answering those scenarios might kind of, again, help to kind of reinforce your competency and skill because you're going to be forced to use it in a way that would be almost like defending yourself in that situation. Well, I think <laughs> that's a sign of how much Adam and I have enjoyed this is that we've both now thrown ourselves on the couch in front of you, <laughs> in front of all of our listeners. We're approaching our end mark here. I think we'll definitely have you on again. This has been really fun. And I think this has been a nice preview of, of your golf book that I want you to write. So it's happening, man. Good, good. I think yeah. you have a lot to offer. And if people are interested, I'm going to throw that link to the survey monkey. I know we haven't done this before, but I think it would be cool if we could get some listeners of the sweet spot involved in Jared's book. So look for the link in the show notes, surveymonkey.com forward slash R forward slash JT golf. And I'll put it in the show notes. Jared, where can everyone find you? And I would just help people. I've read the mental game of poker. I think it could help you with your golf game right now. I think it's a great book. So tell us about your or products you have available, your website, and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Yeah, so jaredtendler.com is my website. I've got a bunch of free kind of resource downloads that you can use. You know, right now they're kind of more geared towards poker and trading, but, you know, as John kind of alluded to, a lot of it is going to be very similar to, to golf. It's a, it's the system, and I use these things with my with my tour players and, and other golfers that I'm working with. So you can download those worksheets to kind of assist your, your work. But the, the mental game of poker one and two, the first mental game of poker and the mental game of trading are kind of they're siblings of each other basically the same book just for different audiences the trading book i would say is updated in terms of the system is more systematized now there's more content it's a bit more user-friendly but if you like poker more than you like trading buy the poker book if you like trading more than you like poker buy the trading book the mental game of poker too is more about kind of presumably you've gotten rid of the crap right the fear the anxiety the 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 anger the tilts confidence issues, Mezgum of Poker 2 kind of aspires you to go farther. So it's improving your learning, trying to get you in the zone more often, improving your decision-making process, things that are kind of more about improving your A game than trying to improve your C game. Yeah, those, those are kind of the big things right now. I'd say I do have a contact form on my website. Right now, I'm kind of in this sort of full force research mode for the golf book and kind of pulling things together. It takes me a while to do these things because I I was, for lack of a better word, full of, full of it when I was a kid, doing things in my professional life at the highest level possible, as I aspire to with my golf, personally, is something that's very important to me. So I know the golf psychology books that are out there, and I will not produce something that in any way 
kind of mirrors what's already there. This is going to be different. And so, yeah, if you're interested in kind of participating in any, in any way, shape or form, I would love to hear from you. Cause for me, I think what will make this very successful is, is that you feel like I'm kind of in your head and understand what you're going through and how to solve that. And having worked with a number of golfers, I have ideas, but for me, I look for things that are very, very consistent across large groups of people. And so ensuring that that's the case is, is a high priority for me. Well, perhaps I will be one of your test subjects. <laughs> Giddy up. <laughs> Adam, where can everyone find you? You guys go to adamyounggolf.com. There's a little game improvement area there. So game improvement products that tens of thousands of golfers have loved and used to get better. You can look at the strike plan for strike issues, the accuracy plan for left to right, left and right issues. And then there's my next level golf program is a brain dump library of over 100 hours of content. John, where can people find you? You can find my book, The Four Foundations of Golf on Amazon. Check out my website, practical-golf.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Appreciate the feedback. Thanks again to Jared. Super enjoyable. We'll definitely have you on again, and we will see you next time with a new episode.